All right, so I had my wife hand me her phone so I have access to a clock because when you're preaching a sermon about timeless, that's not true in terms of sermon length. So we want to make sure that we try to stay a little bit in tune. If today's your first day, uh, we started a series last week called Timeless. And we do live in a world of trends, Uh, people trend politically, uh, cultural trends, clothing trends, housing trends, there's all sorts of trends, but the best thing about living in a trendy world is there are some things that are timeless, that never change. And so last week, we began this series talking about some fundamental things that come out of Scripture that regardless of what's trending in the world currently, these things never change timelessly. And uh, so if you missed last week, um, I encourage you to maybe go back here to iTunes or to the website and catch up, because last week provided the overarching framework for everything we're talking about today. We undertook the very simple task last week of explaining the entire Bible in one sitting. So that was easy. And, uh, but what it does is it gives you the entire framework for the next couple of weeks so that everything that we talk about, you'll have an idea of where to hang that in your mental construct or, or your thinking in terms of your Christian faith. Now, just to really quickly go through last week, if you thought last week was a breeze through the Bible, get a load of this one. What we talked about last week was, first of all, the Bible begins with God living with man on earth. The earth was just as God had intended it. He had created it perfectly. He called it very good. And then we messed it up with sin as the story goes. And the relationship that we had with God in the beginning was broken, and God immediately began to put in place a plan to reconcile that broken relationship. So the second thing we talked about as the Bible progresses forward is something called the Abrahamic Covenant. In Genesis 12 already, the Abrahamic Covenant is just the uh, big overarching title referencing a series of promises made to Abraham. Those promises included that he would have descendants that grew into the nation of Israel, that the world would be blessed through him, and we know that down through the years, Jesus was born in the line of Abraham, and the entire world is blessed as a result of that. And thirdly, there is an everlasting promise of land or territory, and we have yet to see that everlasting promise fulfilled, and so we know that that is yet to come. And then the Bible continues on, and the next thing we talked about is the Davidic Covenant, which is a series of promises made to King David, who was a descendant of Abraham, and essentially that Davidic covenant said that King David, there will one day be a man born who will sit on your throne, and your throne will be established over a kingdom that will last forever. And again, we know that the kingdom of Israel ended at some point, and so for this promise to be true, that kingdom must again be established at some point in the future. And that descendant was known throughout the Old Testament as the Messiah or the Anointed One. And we know through the prophecies that Jesus was born as the Messiah, but he doesn't sit on that throne permanently over a kingdom yet, which again points to a future fulfillment of that. So then we get to Jesus, and Jesus is born fulfilling all of those Old Testament prophecies. He was a man born in the line of David who considered himself a king, and yet he didn't sit on... King's, the King David's throne just yet, and uh, going on, he says that the reason that he was sent was to talk about the kingdom that would be established, the kingdom of God. It would be the territory that God establishes over which he would rule one day, but the first time around, it was essentially to establish that relationship that was broken, a bridge to fulfill it. 
Then we got to the book of Acts and Paul, and they continued to go out after Jesus was taken to heaven to be with God, and their message was to preach the kingdom of God, just as Jesus did, and the name of Jesus. The kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. Essentially, that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, which we celebrated today, you have access to the promises that God made to Abraham. And as a result, we are incorporated into Abraham's line of descendants because of our faith. I guess that's one thing I forgot to mention with Abraham, is that Abraham established the reality that our righteousness before God is a result of our faith, not our behavior. That ultimately, we all think that we have to be these good, perfect people in order to go to church for God to like us better. But the reality is, way back with Abraham, his righteousness was credited to him because of his faith. His faith in God and not his behavior before God. Which all brings us to looking forward in the book of Revelation, where again, we see God living on earth with man. That the story begins with God's perfect creation and relationship with mankind, and it ends with God once again making his creation perfect, living on earth with men. And that's where we ended. So today, as if last week wasn't challenging enough to talk about the entire Bible in one sitting, today I'm going to undertake the easy task of explaining to you everything I know about God. So you remember as a kid, you went to school and your parents would say, what'd you learn today? And you said, stuff. Or if you grew up going to church and your parents would say, what'd you learn about at church? And you would say, God. Well, today, that answer will be true. So we're going to talk about God. And I tell you, this is one of those things that was fun and difficult to prepare because how do you take everything there is to know about God and condense it down into 30 to 35 minutes? I don't know. So this sermon might be timeless, but we'll make our best effort to to really dig in. Because as I considered everything there is to know about God, there are a lot of things that are true, but not always helpful. And then there are some things that are true and helpful, right? So it is probably true today that somebody has a flat tire somewhere, but that's not helpful to us right now. So what would be helpful? So there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God, And yet, for us to truly know God in a personal way, there are certain things that we must know about Him, because there are certain truths about Him that define who He is, and they govern and dictate how He interacts with us. So let me just say this, that I'm going to begin with the assumption that we believe that God exists. That is not always a false assumption, because more and more people question that very premise, and uh, there's even a new kind of atheism surfacing, not based in doubt, but logical reason that says we're not sure that we can be convinced. So from our perspective, we're going to dig into whatever knowledge of God we can uncover with the basic understanding or assumption that God exists. In fact... um, William Newton Clark writes this in The Christian Doctrine of God. He says, there may be other ways of approaching the knowledge of God, but the Christian way is the way of recognition rather than demonstration. So my goal today isn't to prove to you that God exists. My goal today is for us simply to recognize what we believe God reveals about himself in ways that we can understand, which is why in the book of Proverbs, Solomon writes that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That we must first have a respect for, a fear of, uh, not in a scaredy pants kind of way, but just in an awesome reverence 
way of saying there is nothing better than God. And when you begin with that assumption, with that understanding, with that attitude, then your knowledge of God can begin to grow. So what I want to do today, the first half of this sermon might seem a bit academic because we're going to talk about God and some of the attributes that define who he is, that he has revealed to us. And then the second half of today's message, I'm going to talk about why that matters and how it impacts us and how your life can be different as a result. So you ready to dig in? I have given you, as last week, a long, uh, detailed outline in the Bible, so you can take some notes and come back and reference it. In fact, on the uh, website, I'll go ahead and post this note page along with the slides that we use today so you don't have to scribble your little knuckles off if you're a note taker. So, first and foremost, let's talk about something called the natural attributes of God. When we talk about attributes of God, we talk about things that are so true and intrinsic to who God is that he cannot be God without these things. There are certain things that are true of you that even if they weren't true of you, you would still be you. For example, blonde hair or dark hair. That is true of you. It is an attribute of you, but it is not an essential attribute because you could be like me and have no hair and still be you, right? But there are certain parts of you that without you, you could no longer be you. So these are some of those things. These are attributes of the nature of God. First and foremost, he is eternal and he is immortal, which means that he is self-existing. Now, we could go really down a long theological road, but what this essentially means is that that is intrinsic and essential to who God is, that without immortality and without eternity, he would not be God which also means that he is not given immortality. It is not something that he attained at some point. Many different religions have gods who attained immortality at one point. They were born as men and were given immortality. That is not the case here. That without immortality and eternity, God would not be who he is. Deuteronomy 33 says, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath all are the everlasting arms. So part of God's coverage of the earth, of his eternal nature, are these everlasting arms. In fact, when uh, he reveals himself to Moses and he says, my name is, I am. It's the literally the self-existing one. That's one of those concepts that used to bend my brain as a kid. You know, how, how long ago can you go? And then God was there? And what about the day before? Oh, he was still there? Like... Wow, that's just a long time ago. So think about that. Secondly, another essential characteristic of God is that he is unchangeable, which gives a foundation to your faith that it's not you're going to wake up one day and God is different today than he was yesterday, but that also gives us a tool with which we can understand him. As we read through the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we don't have to think that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. He may interact in different ways, but he is unchangeable, so that gives us a filter through which we can view him. James says in the New Testament, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change, like shifting shadows. Now, this next characteristic is one of those fancy words we say omniscient. 
simply means he knows everything. If you're taking notes, you can write that out there. Just he knows everything. And we won't go into this too far, but Psalm 147, King David writes, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. That if there is ever anything that you learned, God already knew it. If there's anything you don't know, God already knows it. He not only understands and is aware of and knows and can write down and cite all the facts, he is aware of all of the motives. He knows everything. He is omniscient. The next one is very similar. It's he's omnipresent, which means he is present everywhere. That There is nowhere you can go that God is not. Now, even though he can walk in the garden and have a physical representation, God's presence covers the entire world. The disciples in the book of Acts, this is just a, a snippet in Acts 17, he says, he is not far from any one of us. In fact, no matter where you go, there he is, okay? God is omnipresent. And then finally, he's omnipotent, which means he can do anything, And we find this throughout the scriptures, it's a basis to believe in miracles, but more importantly, in Matthew 19, Jesus even says, he looks at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So those are some natural attributes of God. Without any of those, he ceases to be God. If God were not omniscient and knowing everything, then there would be things he would not know, therefore he would not be God. They are essential to who God is. Now, this next set of traits to understand about God, because it informs us as to how he interacts with us, are things that we call moral attributes of God. The moral attributes of God are essential qualities about his character, not as much about his existence, but his character. Again, without these essential moral characteristics, he would not be God. He has to have these essential to him. The first of these is holiness. God is holy, he, which simply means moral perfection. Out of this moral perfection grow all sorts of other characteristics, like justice. And God's justice means that he demands payment when sin is committed. That impacts you every single day. Because God's justice demands that every time we step out of his moral guidelines, we create an an equity in the relationship. You experience that same inequity every time someone does you wrong. They say something negative about you, they take something from you, they do something that offends you, and we use this language because we say they owe me an apology, Because when someone has done something wrong against our moral code, it creates relational inequity, and we feel that there is a debt to be paid so that that relationship can come back into equilibrium. And once they have done their penance, they've paid us back, they, you know, apologized, they asked for forgiveness, then we feel like the relationship is restored. But until that happens, we feel there's inequity. So in the same way, God's justice, when we step outside of his moral guidelines, we create this inequality, and his justice demands payment. That's because God's moral perfection is defined by righteousness. And righteousness is really... We could call it purity, which means that in God, no evil can exist. Nothing imperfect can be present. 
which is why today God cannot be in the presence of sin. That's why in the beginning, God lived on earth with man, and when we messed it up, who left? God left. He's been in heaven ever since. And when the end comes for God to return to live with man on earth, sin must be eradicated. That job has been assigned to and given to his son, Jesus. We'll get to that later on. This is also why Jesus says no one has ever seen the Father. No one has ever seen God. No one can be in the presence of God. Hebrews says that even all of these guys that have died have not yet received what's promised, that only Jesus, who has been taken to heaven, has seen God. All right, let's keep moving. Um, Love. Love is an essential attribute of God. Nothing exists apart from God. I, I read this. I liked how this was stated. It says, love has no... Whoops, did I not put that in here? Okay, let me read this. Um... You got it. Okay. Love has no existence apart from God. God performs performs no work apart from his holy love. Love is a basic characteristic of his nature. I'm reading on. The truth is not merely that God loves, but that God is love. Love is not something simply something God does, it is his nature. His love is neither occasional nor limited. There are no times when God does not love, and there are no spheres which his love does not cover. The glorious truth is that God is love. And that's why I had that other verse up there, 1 John 4, 8, simply says God is love. It is who he is. There is nothing that he can do that is not part of love. So you say, wait a second. What about his wrath? What about his punishment? What about his judgment? It's all an extension of his love. All you have to do is look at the loving parent who is willing to spank their child because they love them. I always couldn't stand that when my dad would say, you know, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I never believed it. But as a parent, I understand it more and more. And out of the love that God is grows his compassion and his mercifulness his mercy, which is why he created a way for us to reconcile the broken relationship. That's where grace comes from. That's where his forgiveness comes from. But it's out of his essential characteristic of love. All right, moving on. Number three, another moral attribute is truth. That essentially God is truth. Without him, he's defined by truth. Whatever God says is by its nature truth because God says it and he grows out of truth. Isaiah 65 says, He who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And what that simply means is that what God knows perfectly agrees with who God is. Now, those are his natural attributes and his moral attributes. They define his nature and his character. There is another attribute of God. I didn't know exactly where to place it, but it is so essential to our understanding of God that it was the hinge point for the Jewish religion being separate and different from every other religion in the world, and to this day, it is the defining characteristic of Christianity, and that is that God is one, and the word for one is monotheism. It just means one God. Samuel Wakefield writes this in his book, Christian Theology. 
He says, there cannot be anything above God or equal to him or which is not dependent on him. He is not only the first and the best, but the greatest of beings, and consequently, he stands alone in the universe. This was so central to the Jewish understanding of who God is that the one verse that every Jewish person knew, regardless of what else they may or may not have known, it's kind of like they even had a name for this verse. In in America, it's like having a, a being so famous, you have one name, like Elvis, right? You don't even have to go anymore because that one name brings up a whole lot of extra stuff. I'm not sure that's in any way related to God, but you get the picture. So what they called this verse is the Shema because it is the first word in the Jewish language. But Deuteronomy 6.4 was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that word here in Hebrew is Shema. It was Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. That was, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And God was so emphatic in establishing this in the midst of all of these cultures that had multiplicity of gods, that they had just come out of Egypt, that had the sun god Ra, and they had all of these other gods that that would be represented. In fact, you can do studies on the ten plagues that God brought on Egypt were each representing one of the Egyptian gods, showing that the God of Israel was superseding the Egyptian gods, the Roman gods, the Greek gods, even in today's modern Hindu and Buddhism. There's all series of gods, but Christianity and Judaism are identified by their monotheistic understanding that God is one. Isaiah says this, quoting God, he says, I am the Lord. And in your Old Testament, every time you see the Lord in all capital words, it is specifically the Hebrew name Yahweh. I am Yahweh, and there is no other apart from me There is no God. And what you read throughout the Old Testament and through the New Testament, that that Yahweh is uh, synonymous with the Father, that the Father is God. Apart from me, there is no other. Apart from Yahweh, there is no other, which shows up later, and we're going to look at this, because those things are all true. The moral attributes, the natural attributes, and this fact that God is one, those are things that are true about him. But we might then ask, so what? What does that mean for us? How does God interact with us? Well, there are a couple of ways that God interacts that impact us on a regular basis. And let me go over a couple of those with you today. How are we doing on time? All right. Okay, first of all, God is our creator. And we know that from reading through the creation story of Genesis 1 and 2, it's the creation accounts, God created the world out of nothing, there's nothing that exists that was not created by God first, everything is under his purview. In fact, Isaiah 44 says this, I the Lord, again Yahweh, referring to the Father, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Which is interesting because without going into a long, detailed theological discussion, 
if Yahweh and the Father are synonymous, and through the New Testament, you can read all sorts of scholars that will you know, say the same thing, that every time God is referred to, it's referring to the Father. If according to his own word, it is the Father who alone created with no other help, I love Chris Tomlin and Max Licato, but every time they say Jesus created the world, they're just biblically inaccurate. Because Scripture, according to God's own word, I the Father created alone. Nehemiah 9 says, you, al- are, you alone are the Lord, Yahweh. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. So God is our creator. But God is more than just a creator. Some, some theories of God say he's like a you know, clockmaker, he made the world, wound it up and let it go and doesn't do anything beyond that. But that's not true. Because we also know that God is a heavenly father. 1 Corinthians 8 in the New Testament says this, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ. So even the New Testament writers equate the Father with God, that he is our heavenly Father. Again, in Ephesians 4, it says, There is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And that speaks to all of his other characteristics and his attributes that we discussed. And there's parable after parable after parable that shows God as a loving heavenly father. We know the story of the prodigal son, where the son steps away from the father and lives a life outside of the expectations, a sinful life, and then comes back, and it's the father standing with open arms to receive him and restore the relationship. Again, God is a heavenly father. Jesus on the cross cries out, Abba, Father, because and Abba is a term of endearment, daddy, and, and there's this intimate relationship that we have with him. And then in, in Revelation, when God finally shows up on the scene and lives with us, it says he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes, right, as, as a loving father would do with his children who are in pain. So God is a creator, he's a father. And then, this might explain your childhood as well, but God not only is a father, but he's our judge, Maybe your father was also the judge in your home. But in this way, God acts as a judge, not only of us individually, but of the entire world. Notice what the disciples said in the book of Acts. In 17, it says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, and this is referring to a time before the Old Testament law, way back in the days of Abraham and Job and what was called the patriarchal times, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? They go on, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Well, how's he going to do that? Through a man whom he has appointed or anointed, who is the Messiah, Now, who's that? Having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So the disciples were absolutely clear that while God may have let things go for a period of time, he's now saying everybody needs to repent of their sins because there is a time set in the future, there is a day fixed, by which time God will judge the entire world by appointing his son to accomplish that goal. 
do this for me and to give evidence of that, God says, watch me raise him from the dead. So there is no question who will be the executor of the state. So God is a judge. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, and we'll look at this verse in the coming weeks of this passage, but in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lays out how this is all going to happen when he says, hey, God raised Jesus from the dead, which is proof that eventually you will be raised from the dead. And when you're raised from the dead at the return of Jesus, Jesus is going to show up on the scene and he's going to conquer all the enemies of God across the face of the earth, including the enemy of death. And when that happens... God shows up, he's going to hand it all over to God, and Jesus himself will be made subject to God. Because we know that Jesus has said, all authority on earth has been given to me, and at that time, he's going to give that authority back over to God. Two weeks from now, we'll cover that in great detail. You don't want to miss that. So finally, not only is he our creator, father, and judge, paradoxically, he is also our redeemer. So he is the judge and the one who releases us from any condemnation that might be incurred. Look at what Isaiah says. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. We often think that if someone is a judge and a lawgiver, they're the ones that condemn us. But Jesus says, no, 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 you condemn yourselves. Now, you condemn yourselves because of your uh, unwillingness to follow the law, but the lawgiver is also the one who saves us. In other words, salvation originates with our heavenly Father. It's performed through the sacrifice of His Son, but He is the author. He is the originator. He is the provider of salvation, and we see Him working that plan out ever since the Genesis 3 fall of man. And all of that is the reason we celebrate communion today. It represents his reconciling work through his son. His effort to create a way for us to restore the relationship that's been broken. He's accomplished it through Jesus on our behalf. God is our creator. God is our heavenly father. And he is our judge. He both has given us the law and he has saved us from it. That's the nature of grace. Grace is specifically receiving what we do not deserve. We have received the promise of life when every one of us deserves death. Now, that wraps up the about God part. But as we talk in churches about, okay, if all of this is true, and it's Christians who receive eternal life through Jesus... It leads us to a fundamental question about religion in general. And one of the critiques and the criticisms of Christianity centers around the issue of fairness. I did an entire sermon on this four years ago, and because of time, I'm going to glaze over it today, just hitting the highlights. But I'm going to post that sermon next to this sermon so you can go more in-depth about the fairness issue of Christianity. We don't have enough time today, but I hope that you go back. And I'm going to attempt to summarize it in our final few minutes today. Most of the world religions fall into one of three categories. Either good people live forever, everyone lives forever, or nobody lives forever. Every one of those constructs begins to self-destruct upon further inspection. The idea that good people lives forever is a great idea 
The problem is nobody defines what good is. And there is no external descriptor. So if your idea of good is different than my idea of good, then who's to say what is good? Go back, listen to the sermon. Secondly, everyone lives forever? Well, that's problematic because essentially what you're saying is this is just a big do-over, so why would God even worry about bothering with this life in which we you know, exist with pain other than maybe he's a sadistic kind of God who loves to see us in pain? That's not consistent with the character of, characteristic of love. So that self-destructs. And then, of course, if nobody lives forever, well, there's not much reason to talk about that, right? So basically, Christianity says that only Christians live forever. And by living forever, we mean specifically to be raised to live forever in the coming kingdom. Now, that idea sounds so narrow and so exclusive. It doesn't even sound right. And it's a bit uncomfortable to say, especially in our inclusive culture, that only Christians get to make it. So because that's uncomfortable, the result is we often only talk about the rewards of being a Christian, the benefits of having faith, and we ignore the reality of what it means to not have faith and to not follow Christ. But if we say it out loud... The other side of the coin is that if only Christians make it, everyone else doesn't. Everyone else is destined to be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, the criticism that most people bring is, well, that's not fair, right? And that's a valid criticism because if it were to be perfectly fair, you know, for example... What about people who live in other cultures and have never even heard of Jesus? How would they believe in him if they've not heard of him? Well, that doesn't seem fair, right? And, and the other reason it's not fair is because it means then if Christians make it, then some good people aren't going to make it because I know some good people who aren't Christians. But that also means some bad people are going to make it because don't you know some Christians who are real heels? So it seems problematic to say that Christianity is not fair. And so I want to quickly address this issue as as quickly as I can. Let me say from the outset, Christianity is not fair. We just have to own that and say it's not fair. And that's an exactly right statement. If it were fair, three things must be true. One, everyone must hear a clear presentation of the gospel. Two, everyone must have an equal chance to believe. And three, everyone must have exactly the same background, culturally, historically, um, racially, in every way, so that every single person would be equally predisposed to believe or not believe. But if that's what defines fairness, Christianity is not fair. But there is a second corollary truth here, that this is not the original system. In fact, in the original system, in the Garden of Eden, when the world was as God intended it, as he made it, everyone had the same exposure. Everyone had the same opportunity. Everyone had the same background. But with the introduction of sin into the equation, fair went out the window. And nothing has been fair ever since. In fact, this is so self-evident that your parents said this to you all the time growing up, right? They said, life isn't exactly. And the key question is, okay, well, who messed it up? Not God. We messed it up. 
So the point is, the system that we have in place isn't fair, but it's not the original system that God had set up. God made it fair. We're the ones that broke it. And God, at that point, had every right to simply walk away and say, look, I did a good job, you messed it up, good luck. But he didn't do that. Because one of the moral attributes of God is that he is love. And so instead of walking away, he began fixing it on the spot. And today, we live in plan B, which God created given the circumstances that we created. So let me say this third thing. This is the fair system possible. Because after the Garden of Eden, since fair went out the window and was not an option, right? If we define fairness as everything being equal, does it mean then that God is not fair? Absolutely not. Because if our Heavenly Father is like a parent, a perfect parent, consider yourselves, if if you've ever been a parent or ever had a parent, right? If you've ever been a parent or had a parent, raise your hand. Okay. Now, Kids put us in decisions all the, or in situations all the time where we are forced to make a decision or judgment on something. And when we do, our children say to us, well, wait, you're not being fair. And so as a parent, we say, too bad, life's not fair. But you're a fair person. It's simply that your child put you in a situation where you were not able to be equitable which in their mind equals fairness. And so their accusation of unfairness is in no way a reflection of you. It's a reflection of the people who put you into those circumstances. So the point being that the system in which we live is not a reflection of God's fairness. It is a reflection of the situation and the circumstances which we handed to him. So what system did God create? I've tried to boil Christianity down into like three statements. But essentially, I would say this about Christianity. One, everybody is welcome. It is not fair, but it is as fair as it can possibly be because there is nobody who is excluded. Every single person who has ever been born, every single person who has ever lived, has had the opportunity and is welcome. Romans 10 says... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It may seem unfair at the surface, but nobody has ever been turned down by God. Everybody is welcome. Secondly, everybody gets in the same way. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not an issue of being born into the right family or with a certain amount of wealth or a certain amount of intellect. There is one way to the Father, one way to God. It is through Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are. Everybody gets there the same way. Can it be any more fair than that? And then thirdly, everybody can meet the requirement. Well, what is the requirement? Well, let's go back to what Mark read to us earlier during communion. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have every eternal life. Everyone can do this. Everyone can meet that requirement. I'm not sure how good I have to be to make it, 
or if I have enough time to be good enough if it were about being good. But I can sure come to believe. I can sure be baptized. I can sure come to faith. I know everybody can come to that place too. So everybody is welcome. Everybody gets in the same way. And everybody can meet the requirement. What system can be fairer than that? Given the circumstances, what we've handed him, there is no other system that I think opens the door more widely. You know, consider the alternatives. Well, if good people make it, right, how good and by whose definition? If everybody makes it, well, what's he waiting for? And if nobody makes it, well, that's not a good system. And, And some believe that because you just keep dying and living and dying and living and dying and living and you don't ever make it. So if you want to say that Christianity is a narrow system where everyone is welcome, not many will choose it, true, and maybe that's what makes it narrow, but why? Everybody's welcome, everybody makes it the same way, and all can meet the requirement. How can it be any easier than that? When I was eight years old, um, I was eight years old when I, when I met the requirement, I guess, if you want to say it that way. I, I remember thinking, and I didn't have many thoughts at that age, but one of the thoughts I had was, well, of course I believe. I guess I should do something about it because, you know, I don't want to miss out, and the alternative doesn't sound all that great. Um, and so I went forward, and I was at a summer camp, and my dad was preaching a sermon, and he gave me a big hug, and I was baptized on July 4th, 1980 ish. But what a great system that children can get in. Criminals can get in. Pirates can get in. Reprobates can get in. People on their deathbed can get in. What better system exists in the world than the system that God has created when we took fairness and threw it out the window? Everybody's welcome. Everybody gets in the same way, and everybody can meet the requirement. So as Christians, you don't need to be intimidated by a world that says it's too narrow, it's not fair, and it should be thrown out. You don't need to be scared. You don't need to be backed down. You can embrace and invite because we have the world's best, most wide open, most inclusive system God could possibly have created because that's who God is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for Uh, lighting the way for us and not asking us just to have blind faith. I I thank you for making it easy where all are welcome, all get in the same way, and we can all meet the requirement. Thank you for uh, giving us, please give us boldness and to realize it's the most open system in the world and you don't close the door, that, that you have swung the door wide open. And for those maybe who are here and mad at you today because life hasn't worked out, maybe their friend died, maybe prayer not been answered, maybe their family isn't the way they want it to be, maybe financially they're in a hole, I pray that you would help them see that you're not the problem, but the solution. I ask that you would give us perspective, that we would be angry at Satan as a result of our sin, not angry at you, the source of our salvation. Help us look forward to the day that Jesus returns when he establishes a kingdom on a new earth and Satan absolutely gets what he deserves. And we get what we don't deserve, an eternal life with you. Lord, for the person today dealing with anger and not sure that they have met the requirement, I ask that you would give them courage to take that step of faith, to commit to baptism and owning it and accepting Christ as the Savior and not worrying about whether they're good enough, 
but trusting in how good you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.